You may be seated, and as you are, take your Bibles and turn to first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we're in chapter 2 this morning. You can be praying for uh, Pastor Michael and Christy as they get a break and some time away and in preparation also for uh, Pacific Church Network's annual meeting tonight as well, where uh, Michael takes a, a role in that and participates in, in the leadership there. So but we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. And uh, I don't know if you <clears throat> are aware, but I, I have a tendency to like a good documentary. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Anybody, any documentary watchers out there? Come on. Wow. Hold on. Raise them higher. We need to start a club. Okay. I like this. Uh, there's something about a good, a good documentary. There's a lot of poor ones. Uh, but a good documentary is really just that. It's documenting, right? It's, it's telling the story of how someone developed and what they did or perhaps some place or some people or something. It's, it's an explanation, it's a thorough explanation, a breaking down to understand what it is that still has influence or impact today. Uh, one of my favorites actually is on the typewriter. Anybody? You watch the one on the typewriter? It's fascinating. Uh, makes me want to go get a typewriter and actually um, remember what that was like. Um, but uh, there's, there's probably a few more serious documentaries out there that are helpful, but one I've been enjoying lately is called The Turning Points of Middle East History. Ooh, that one's fun. Uh, and my wife, she likes to read a good book in her pastime. I like to watch a good documentary. Um, but uh, it's just, it's funny how understanding history or whatever it was that happened, or maybe it is a, a person or a thing, it orients you, it helps you understand your present. It, it gives you background. Let's say it's World War II history and you're watching a documentary on that. It helps you understand. And when you see, right, the famous line of, if we don't understand history, you know, the history will repeat itself. It's just kind of a, it's, it's in the fabric of what uh, humanity is. And uh, I, I apologize if you had a very boring history teacher that turned you off from the subject, but uh, good history and told well and to dig down and not just to understand, oh, this happened on such and such a date. It's that this happened and it's important because it made this shift and it impacts into the present. And it has all these decades and maybe even centuries in between. That's what a, a good documentary does is it really orients the person in the present in a way that they couldn't if they didn't understand the past. And in a sense, if I can borrow from that analogy to talk about the book of beginnings, which is Genesis. And you have to remember that this book is being first delivered to a new nation that was just delivered through the Red Sea. This is think about their recent history. It's crazy. They've been in slavery for 400-ish. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. They've been in slavery for an extended period of time during that 400 years. They've just been delivered. And I think it's only two months in that it takes them about two months to get to the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where Moses comes down and delivers this. And they're understanding they're being oriented for the very first time. Sure, there's oral tradition and there's understandings that have come down verbally, but authoritatively now, 
the nation of Israel is listening to how we got here. And they're being uh, informed, you could say, about how God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And that's in the, the very fabric of that nation. So we come to the book of beginnings again this morning for this orientation. And it's really in this section, in chapter 2, if you will, that Moses is going to highlight. And if you would, like maybe, a, you know what a pop-out menu is? Where you like run your cursor over it and it just goes boom and there's a much, lot more information. That's kind of the idea here in Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 1 being more of a, perhaps a 10 or 5,000 foot overview of God's creation. Chapter 2, he zooms in and he's really going to target uh, this, uh, not only his, his rest on the seventh day, but that this is what was happening on the sixth day as well. And you could, you could say that at least the way God created and Moses delivers the message to us is that he starts with the general and he moves towards the specifics. And I, I, would, I would even argue that he starts with things that, yes, they represent his nature, and they represent a creator, but as we move through the first two chapters of the Genesis narrative, you begin to see that God is not just creating a, a beautiful setting for mankind. Uh, that's really, it's, that is the orientation. He, he then creates, you could say, morality in chapter 2, and then now we have ourselves in the end of chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, the creation of marriage. So then God, you could say, God created marriage. Before the fall, all of this is set up. It's a zooming in on what is taking place between man and woman. What happened on that sixth day? 127 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God's image is already stamped into mankind through male and female, but now in chapter 2, it's this expansion of those details. So let's read chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, a, not, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's our text 
for this morning. Fascinating passage that sets up from the very beginning, from the very beginning, God's creation of marriage. And we're going to walk through the, the little narrative from 18 to 23, which is really going to give us some of the, the facts of how God indeed has done this. He's the one, he's the designer that has done this, but also a major explanation at the end in verse 24 and 25, and really why you find 18 to 23 in this uh, beginning chapters of Genesis. So let's look at, first of all, God's declaration to himself. God's declaration to himself is found in verse 18, where he's not talking to Adam here. God's saying, to himself, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. There's God's declaration. And immediately, if you've been following through Genesis 1, you see that, and God said that it was, what's that phrase? It was, it was very good. But then, and there's, there's good, and there's good, and there's very good. So certainly this is an expansion of what has taken place on day six when he's saying, and it's like we know what happened on day six generally, but we don't know the specifics of how God created man and woman distinctly and in particular with marriage involved. So God says it's not good, and this phrase clearly stands out from the others that were saying it is, everything is good. So God in, in, indicates his intention here that because it's not good, I want to put things into a very good state so he decides, this is what I'm going to do. He says it right there. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, immediately, we have Western ideals, and we have our own cultural uh, understandings that we, we want to jump to what this automatically means. But I think it is, in these kind of cases, really helpful to understand, well, what does the original meaning mean of the word helper? Uh, some of you have a footnote there in your ESV and perhaps other versions that say another way you could translate this is corresponding to. I think that's actually a really helpful tra uh, translation of this word etzer, which means the, the one who's mere image of or of opposite of, not exact in representation, but co perfectly corresponding to the one that already exists. This is a, a helper that would be, or a, someone corresponding to Adam. And, and again, to further understand the explanation of this word, you, we might think in, in our culture, oh, helper, that automatically indicates maybe one, you could read it of one of two ways. They're, they're lesser because they're the ones helping, or you could say the person they're helping is so pathetic that they need the help. So... There's instantly, I'm getting some thumbs up here and there. You, we immediately, I think in a Genesis 3 world, we, we want to say, oh, this, this, this means this or, or you know, this one's higher. No, 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 no. Clearly, at the end of the day, I hope we can see that God created two equal beings. Male and female, he created them. That's how he wanted to express his image in two genders, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, if you would turn very quickly to Psalm 124, Psalm 124, you might think this is a, a funny cross-reference, but uh, I want to just pick two of these. There's mul multiple references in the Psalms to the word etzer, the exact same word as helper. Look who's, 
the helper in this passage. Psalm 124, verse 8. Psalm 124, 8. Our help, there's our word, our etzer, is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Wait a second. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth? That doesn't imply weakness at all, does it? Uh, Look over at Psalm 146. Psalm 146, and again, there's multiple references in the Psalms where God is showing himself to be, or the, the prayers are crying out for this God who is Israel's help. Psalm 146, verse 5, you see the same kind of thing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. I know that was a lot of turning just for those things, and I don't want to take a lot of time to look at more, but you can continually see this word in the Old Testament used in that kind of way. Uh, Helper here means complementary. It means corresponding to it means the, the ability, or on, on, on one hand, for Adam, unable to accomplish what he needed to accomplish without the woman in existence. So this is, it's not a derogatory term, it's one that complements and it perfectly corresponds to Adam's need. God said, it's not good, I'm going to come up with a solution, I'm going to make a helper, a, cor- a corresponding person to him. So you see that very clearly in in, in verse 18. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, we are introduced to the animals again. We're like, what what are we talking about animals? I thought we were talking about um, making a helper fit for him. And 19 through 20 is to really highlight, especially for Adam, but also for the reader, that there's a major disparity between man and animals. There's a disparity between man and animals. That might seem obvious to some, but in the context of hearing this for the very first time, and maybe even in a post-evolutionary world that we live in, post-evolutionary meaning we're after Darwin, like Darwin introduced these crazy theories of, of evol- we come from monkeys, so maybe it is helpful to re-clarify that man is indeed distinct from the animal kingdom. Verses 19 and 20 Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Interesting, that's God allowing Adam in his subduing of nature, his dominion over nature, to play a role. Here you almost, for the first time, you see God in his sovereignty allowing man to exercise his own quote, sovereignty over his dominion. God has set man up to do this. Man begins to exercise the authority that's been delegated to him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. It's a very simple statement. Whatever Adam decided to to call him, that's the name that stuck. So we begin to see that God is bringing these animals, this is God's part, God is bringing these animals to Adam But the intention here is to highlight for Adam the differences between him and the animals, but also that there's something that he is missing. And I do think it's there's there's arguments and a lot of paper used to explain how this this probably couldn't have happened on one day. This is uh, you know certainly impossible for one man to name all of the animals. But let me ask you this: Where did all the animals fit? a few chapters 
later? The ark. The ark. So if all the animals, which certainly weren't as complex as all, as all the species we have today, I definitely think that they could easily be assembled in not some chaotic, crazy way, but in a very calm and timely way for them to either have an animal parade in front of, in front of Adam, which is kind of funny, or maybe they're just like, you know, coming towards Adam, and he's kind of like, yeah, I like, I like that name there. And so it's however long that took, I think it's very possible that they could be assembled in a reasonable space that Adam could easily have accomplished this. That's a side note, but I think it's important. And Adam's part is simply to, to name the animals that come to him. I think it is interesting to note as well that there's dominion being exercised here before sin enters the world. There's a need for man to organize and create this naming system or this, this uh, introduction of knowledge to the earth before it's not that he's trying to corral it after the fall be like things are crazy and out of control and we we need order now we need to exercise dominion and subdue the earth god's giving this assignment to adam pre-fall and that he's he's giving him task and work and exercising his dominion before the fall but god's point here in verse 20 look at it the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But here's the emphasis. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That's the whole point of the animal in insertion, right? It's to highlight for Adam, you're different, Adam, and also, Adam, there's something missing. Everything else here in front of you has pairs, but you don't have a pair, at least yet. So this, this awakens in Adam this sense of difference and a sense of aloneness that he perhaps did not feel before this task. Looking again, we see not only that there's a disparity here, but that instantly God's going to create a solution for Adam. He doesn't leave Adam hanging. He instantly creates a solution. Really in five, I wouldn't say easy steps, but five steps God creates or he makes this solution for Adam in five steps. Look at it with me, if you will, in verses 21 through 22. 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, some of your translations say built or fashioned, into a woman and brought her to the man. Verses 21 and 22, we can see that God makes the solution. He, he helps man in his state of aloneness, and he brings forth a woman out of created matter already and brings her and fashions her for the man. You think about this, it says that, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep, caused a deep sleep. Uh, would you just put your finger in chapter 3 and flip over to Genesis chapter 15 really quick? Genesis 15. This is where God is making a covenant with Abraham. The same phrase is used in chapter 15, <clears throat> verse 12, I believe. Yes, 
15, verse 12. God is going to set up his, his covenant with Abraham. And he notice in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a what deep sleep fell on Abram. <clears throat> and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So this exact same phrase is used in Genesis 15 to denote that when God was making a covenant with Abraham, and here's the idea here in Genesis 15, is that man is doing absolutely nothing in this covenant. God will keep both sides of the covenant in Genesis 15. And back in Genesis chapter 2, God is showing that man has absolutely nothing to this. Man didn't even know there was a problem. Let that sink in for a second. Man didn't even know there was a problem or something out of place until God said, name the animals, and then he felt it. And so God creates the solution. He causes the deep sleep. He wants man to, it wants to be highlighted here that man caused nothing to happen in this situation. Notice he took a rib. Here we have the first surgery pre-fall. That's crazy. First surgery, first organ harvesting, if you will. Uh, I don't know if that's an organ, but... The rib, he's taking this from the side of Adam, and it's, it is interesting to note that God is creating off of something he already created. I find that fascinating. He forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. He says he breathes his life into Adam, but for Eve, he works off of, if you will, something that he's already created. And he, he, it says next, he closes up, he closes up Adam, thankfully, God's uh, post-op, he makes, in, he makes that rib into a woman. And this, this, this phrase here, this word built or fra- fashioned, does highlight the stability or the beauty or the construction really is the idea, the, the perfect construction that God uses to put together a woman. And then last, it says that he brought her to the man. This is indeed the first marriage in the Bible. The first marriage in the Bible, God is officiating at. It says that, it says he's, when he had done all this, he brought her to the man, which shows what from God? It shows his authority. It shows his creativity. It shows his goodness. It shows that, I really think it shows, most importantly, he knows what he's doing. He, know, he knows what he's doing. He, he, he created the first marriage at the very opening of creation. Now, this is a little dangerous, I wouldn't call it a game, but a dangerous exercise sometimes is to pretend that certain passages are shoved down to white spaces. And we, we just go from Genesis 2, 17, straight into the fall, 3, 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than other the beasts of field. If we lost these verses or didn't have this revelation, what does it do? I think sometimes it helps us understand, well, why is it there? And I think this is clear. We already know that man and woman are created in God's image, male and female. We know that. But Moses drills in or he highlights or, or, or tapers down, if you will, this import of the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And so you can see that man's response, you know man is queued up for this because of his, excl- his exclamation that happens in the next verse. Then that's in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. I think that shows that the, the animal naming got, made its point. Adam, Adam knew there was, there was difference here. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And thankfully in the, in the English, that carries over. There could be words that don't even match up in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's Ish and Isha. So the woman was taken out of the man. In the English, you see the same wordplay where it's woman taken out of man. Now, that doesn't always happen in translation, but it does here in the English. So man's exclamation about the woman is that finally, this at last is someone that is equal and matches me. That's, that's man's ex- exclamation in verse 23. But think about, think about this for a second. Why does there need to be a slow motion examination of the creation of man and the creation of woman? Why not just be good with chapter 127, that male and female, he created them, moving on. Now I give you dominion, and here's the trees, and boom, the fall. I would argue that God slows down. There's more frames in this reel than we saw the first first go-around. And we're watching it at a closer and maybe a slower speed. And we're saying, wait, wait, wait a second, what was that? What was that right there? Hold on, pause that and, and zoom into that. That's the idea here in this, cha- this uh, section of this chapter. It's a slow-mo, if you will, to highlight, I think, this. There's distinction, but there's also complementation at the same time. There's difference and there's similarity. There's equality, but there's sameness. How can, wait, hang on, God. Like, how can you do that? How can you create two people in your image that are different but the same? Only God can come up with these kinds of things. And I think that's why there's this major exclamation from Moses saying, God, (laughs) what? Finally, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I think all that gets us to this in verse 24. All of that really is a setup for this major explanation from Moses about marriage. This, you could say, is an author's note. It's a parenthetical note. It's, it's not really in the narrative, is it? Because we have a therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There it is, quoted by Paul, quoted by Christ. There's this passage that explains, therefore, this is why this happened. Going back to the documentaries for a second. Have you ever been watching a documentary and you're like, that's why that is named that? That, okay, that's why, okay, I'm just going to go to my turning points in Middle Eastern history. I'm like, that's why Baghdad was such an important city in the 11th century. Did anybody care about that? Well, you understand its importance. You understand why it wants, they want to resurrect it, or perhaps Cairo, or like, why, why is there Islam in this section of the world, but not this? And, and how did it have influence here? It's, <clears throat> what it's doing there for me as I watch this is I'm like, ah, yeah, okay, that, yeah, all right, okay, that makes sense. That's, that's why that, that happens. 
And here in the book of Genesis, you have for the very first time, think about it, you have families everywhere. You have a nation that's probably somewhere, and this is a really rough estimate, somewhere between two and three million people camped, camped, there we are again, we're always talking about camping, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Families everywhere. Families that have come from Haran down to uh, modern-day Israel and from there got down to Egypt. And now from Egypt, they don't even know this yet, right? If we're like starting at the beginning and reading the story, they don't even know this whole journey yet. They haven't got to the rest of Genesis. But Genesis is this massive orientation of understanding God's plan, God's design, God's origins. So I don't want to take the time to flip there, but in, in, if you just want to write down in chapter 11, verse 9, there's another parenthetical note by Moses about the Tower of Babel. He's saying, and this is where God came down, created confusion, and there's, now that's why there's languages everywhere. And, and as an Israelite, you'd be like, oh, that's why everybody speaks a different language. And I don't think it's just these like, well, oh, okay, that's nice to know, God. It's, it's things that orient you to help you understand and navigate the world that you're in. Um, we could also look at Genesis 32, 32. Remember that funny note, if you've ever come across that and read, where it says, and this is why, Genesis 32 is the story of Jacob, and it says, this is why, to this day, Israelites don't eat what? Do you remember that? The hip socket has nothing to do with eating humans. It's just they don't eat the hip socket of the, anything they are eating that that's, they're allowed to eat. Why? I think about if you're eight years old, and you're like, da, 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 eating with your parents, and they throw this big chunk of meat away that's attached to the hip. You're like, what are, what are, what are we doing here? And mom and dad, they might not have the explanation. They might not have the story to explain to the eight-year-old that this is why we, we waste that meat. This is why we throw that in the trash or we burn it because well, they don't know. It's, it's 400 years from Jacob. I'm, I'm sure many families in the Israelite community did not really know why they did such and such a thing. But in Genesis 32, 32, you're like, oh, this is why we don't eat that. Because it's like a tribute or it's a shout out, you could say, to our father Jacob, who when he was wrestling with the angel, the angel broke his hip and he limped for the rest of his life. And you could say it's anecdotal. I think it's a helpful parenthetical phrase from the author. author that's what's going on here. Maybe more importantly, in Exodus 31, 16 and 17, God says, and this is why you need to rest on the Sabbath day. And this shall be a sign for you throughout all your generations. The Sabbath day will be for you and throughout all your generations that what? I worked for six days, but on the seventh day, I rested. So he uses the, he gives this to the, the Israelites, but he had done this thousands of years, perhaps, maybe more, before they got this revelation. But the lights are coming on for the nation of Israel to be like, God's setting up a nation that copies him, that's able to understand and orient themselves in this very dark and crazy and confusing world. God is helping them understand their beginnings and origins. That's what he does here 
when he explains this about marriage. Therefore, let's read it again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's going on here? When a man is to leave his father and mother. What it's not is a command to go out and like stop what you're doing, go out and get married right now. All right, we'll, we'll come back to that later. But what it is, it's an orientation and it's an explanation of saying, therefore, when marriage happens, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Why does he say this? Adam and Eve didn't know this. Adam and Eve did not have what? Parents. Adam had no mother and father to leave and to cleave to his wife. But he says, therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father. He's, he's arguing off of, it's almost like he's springing off of this text to help the Israelites understand what is happening around them and what they need to do. But he's doing it based on what we just read and explained in 18, through 18, 18 to 23. So what, what it was this deal about parents? Here's the idea that when man leaves his father and mother and he's then now cleaving to his wife, what's happening here is an exchange of loyalties. An exchange of loyalties. It does not mean you stop talking to your parents. It doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't mean you cut off all relationship. That's not the idea. But what is happening here is it's a new priority for a man. Taking on a wife is a new priority for a man that is like no other priority that he's ever faced in life. It's, and it's not just, oh, we have a new priority. It, this, this denotes a decisive shift in loyalties, a decisive shift in loyalties that I'm, I'm not, in a sense, I'm not about that anymore. So strong that these same words talk about how Israel forsook Remember, many times in the prophets, Israel forsook her God, and the word there is she left her God, and she, guess what? She, I don't know how to say that, I don't know what the verb choice is there, but she was cleaving to other idols in other nations. That's how strong these words are, as God uses them later in the Old Testament in, in Hebrew to show that this is what, Israel basically did the opposite of what she was supposed to do. That's how strong these words are, is that a man is to leave one and come, up, come with new priorities and pursuits, and it's a new commitment, a new investment, you could say, new interests that, is, that sets us up for this next phrase. Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. That's the only way you can become one flesh, right, is to leave other loyalties behind and unify your loyalty. That's the idea of one fleshness, is that it, it is a, yes, there's two beings. There's two beings. There's two people. But that there's one heart. There's one interest, if you will. Even one, one whole. One whole. It, it goes from me doing my thing and you doing your thing to, oh, that changes when we get married. There's, there's, sure, there's differences, uh, but 
more than anything, what crowds, not even crowds out, what supersedes the differences is the unity, is the one flesh nature of that relationship that doesn't happen anywhere else. So it includes oneness of mind and heart as well and includes their integrity as a unit, but also in their spiritual nature, their unity. Jesus mentions this, Paul mentions this, Mark chapter 10, Matthew 19, he talks about and re-highlights how important marriage is. Um, but notice the next phrase. Look at the next phrase. It's, it's funny also that he ends with this. He says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? I think Adam and, Adam and Eve either knew that and they weren't ashamed or they, they had no radar for that. I don't think this is, this, Adam and Eve didn't need to know that. But who needed to know that? <clears throat> this new nation that God was creating there in the Sinai Desert. And many times in Exodus, but especially Leviticus, it talks about that nakedness, but not with no shame, but with shame. And many, many other times in the Old Testament, nakedness is associated with shame and even guilt. Not always, but most frequently. So here you have this little anecdotal uh, note at the end that man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I think that's supposed to jump off the page and be like, whoa, what? That's not, that's not our experience. There's always, there's always uh, shame with nakedness, and that's inappropriate. That would be the, the, what is, Israel's response would be to such a thing. So there's, there's the passage that sets up 24 to 25. But I want to look at this for the rest of our time today. I want to look at some implications for today. I want to look at some, some, some modern-day implications. And if I could say this, first of all, this is not, whether you, you, you may want to argue that it is, but it's not an imperative to stop everything and get married. It's not an imperative. And we know that because it's, sometimes we don't have the full story in, in Genesis uh, 2, 24 and 25. But when you have Christ and Paul explain more of that story that was written thousands of years before them, authoritatively speaking about that passage, they become the best commenter, commentator and the best expositor on that passage. And we know that Christ says in Matthew 19 that marriage is not for everyone. God knows that. God knows that he created, it said, some who are born eunuchs, some who became eunuchs, to serve in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself was what? Single. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was human. Jesus fulfilled every part of the law. So if he's disobeying Genesis 2, 24, and 25, he cannot cover our sin. He's broken the law at one point. Therefore, by example, you can clearly see that Jesus, being the perfect Israelite, the perfect Hebrew, did not get married, and I think he reshaped the idea of the family. I'm out on a limb here, and I'm, not, I'm, getting, I'm getting further and further away from my notes. Um, but Jesus says, who is my mother? There's a story in, I believe it's Luke chapter 9, don't quote me on that. Luke chapter 9, where the, the people are like, kind of like, ah, we, we need Jesus. <clears throat> and there, there's this rush towards Jesus, and the crowds are just going crazy. 
And someone in the crowd's like, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brother are looking for you. And at this point, Jesus has launched his public ministry, and he's not, he doesn't say, hey, who cares about my mother and brother, brothers? I don't care about them anymore. I'm doing some pretty important stuff here. Can't you see I'm healing people? He doesn't do that. But what does he take the opportunity to do? He says, who are my mother's mother and my brothers? Those who listen to the word of God and do it. And if anybody has the authority to reshape the priorities of family, it's Jesus. And I think you see Paul pick up this theology in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, hey, if you want to be married, be married. If you don't want to be married, that's fine. Stay in the station that God's called you to. That's totally fine. I think we have to understand that and support that. So that's not what this is saying. Let's say, let's give some implications of what it is saying. Um, that here, here's one, that God is the grand creator and designer, which means who's not? Me. I had nothing to do with Genesis chapter 2. Nothing to do with Genesis chapter 2. As a matter of fact, my federal head, Adam, he did nothing himself. He was asleep. <laughs> he, he was asleep. He was a ball of dust that God, in his creative most powerful sovereignties like breathed into and said, how about a human come out of dust? That's crazy. And then he took a rib from that person he just created out of nothing. He didn't need dust to create Adam, right? He just decided to make him out of clay. He pulls a rib out of him and says, how about I fashion that rib into a perfect fit for that man? God's the designer, not man. Man doesn't get to mess with this stuff. Man has no right to start going back to Genesis chapter 2 and taking parts he doesn't like or reinterpreting them in ways that he's pressured to do so this very day. He doesn't have that right. God's the designer. God's the creator. He gets to say what how he made it, and why he made it in Genesis chapter 2. So he's the grand creator. He's the designer. Also, God created, it's so obvious, I don't even know if I would have preached this sermon 20 years ago if I would say this. But it's so obvious, and I think you know what I'm going to say, God created two what? Two genders. Guess what? And those are also called sexes, <laughs> okay? I don't know if you've been schooled on the modern supposed differences between gender and sex, throw it all out the window. It's gender you're born with, sex I choose. What? No, no. God chooses both of those for you. You're not in control of your gender just like you weren't in control of your own birth. You're not in control of your conception and what chromosome you're going to get or not get. God's in charge of that. God created two genders. Why? Because he wanted his image displayed in the binary. Yes, God wanted his image displayed in a binary. And I think you see that all over Genesis 1 and 2. There's other, yes, there's more than that, you could say, in certain species of trees. But all throughout the Genesis 1 narrative, you see him, he does this on one side, and he does this on the other side. He does this first, but then he complements it with this. And it's almost like we can't read God's mind in Genesis 1 if we didn't have Genesis 2, but it's no surprise that he does the same pattern when he gets to Genesis 2. You could really, if you know Genesis 2, go back to Genesis 1, you could see where God's going with this. 
And he creates the binary relationship between male and female. He created two genders, and it's a divine ordinance. It's a divine ordinance that man, he can truly try to mess with it, but it doesn't really matter. Even if you say there's a spectrum, even if you believe there's a spectrum, guess what? There's two poles. You're still male and female. And you can try to create something in between, but you're still down to a binary at the end of the day. Here's here's another one. I say this to you to hopefully help strengthen you to know how to not fight and argue with others, but to be confident that God knew what he was talking about and God knew what he did. I think that's that's why I stressed that this morning. Uh, Here's another one. God created the order. God created the order. Why he did it this way, sometimes we don't know. Man was created first from dust, and the woman was made second out of him perfectly. Don't know why God did that, but Adam is our federal head. I think this is important theological, theological note because it shows that everything hangs on Adam. Even though Eve was the one that was tempted and fell for it, it all hangs on Adam as our federal head. We all came from one being. So why God did that, we don't always know. But God created the order, and we should follow that. Here's here's one more point, and that is that God created exclusive loyalty as a part of marriage. Exclusive loyalty as a part of marriage. That comes with marriage, is this 224, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, even though we know this is expounded upon by Jesus, he supports this text before he launches into the discussion about eunuchs and singleness. But he supports this text. He says, therefore, what God has brought together, let not man, what? Separate. It's a union that God creates. And so God created exclusivity as a part of the marriage relationship, as a part of that union, that oneness. And this is why we're to, if you are married, you're clinging to one person. You've tapered down. I hope this doesn't sound too crude, but you've tapered down all of the 7 billion people, which really isn't a reality, but let's just say three and a half, because, right, Let's just say they're perfectly male and female. Three and a half billion people. You kind of sort of had those options, uh, maybe. You're, you get, guess what? You get one. It comes down to one person. That's, that, man, wow. Interesting how God said that's the way it's going to be if it's going to be marriage. So here's our conclusion this morning. We have to recognize the beauty of God's design, and I think this is maybe the best walk away, is just trust Him. Trust Him. No matter where you're at in your station of life, you could be widowed, um, you could be married, you could be married for two years, you could be married for 20 years, you could be married for 60 years. You could be single, you could be young and thinking about these things that are in front of you, but no matter what your station is, we support this. Why? 
Not because it's like written on a sign and we're like all about like, hey, let's like make sure we stand up for this thing. It's not really about that. It's because that, whatever that is, is written in God's word in Genesis chapter two. And so we submit to that. So no matter what our station and calling, we understand that God is the perfect designer. He's the perfect creator. And my responsibility in a sense is like Adam's is just to just be so thankful and praise him for the way he created us here in Genesis 2 and also created marriage. Let's pray together. Our Father, Lord, thank you for your design. Sometimes it's perplexing and sometimes it's a struggle, even though when it seems so obvious when you read a text, what your design is, we know life is not that black and white and not that simple and easy. But Lord, you've given us your pattern and you've given us this design perfectly before what's going to happen in Genesis 3. And so we want to recognize you as that and, and submit to you as creator Lord. Um, Lord, we... We feel just even our, our weakness in looking at this passage where we had nothing to do with this. Lord, we also feel our weakness when it comes to exercising what these things mean and to live them out in application even to this day. And so I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would help us listen to what you say and obey it, Lord, most importantly in your gospel um, that redeems us that gives us hope to trust in you for not just this, but for every way of life. Lord, we pray that you would, you would bless our time this morning. We pray that you would bless this body. pray that you would bless your word into our hearts as we study it, as we see what's there to interpret it, and we walk away to apply it. Uh, Father, I pray that you would um, just be glorified in this entire process and time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.